If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. It's about a dozen books to the right of the book of Psalms, which is in the middle of your Bible, which is where we spent most of the last year. Today continues a two-part series, Sovereign Compassion, the story of Jonah and the great God. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first half of the book, chapters 1 and 2, and a sermon titled, Jonah, Some Sailors and a Fish. This morning's sermon is from the second half of the book, chapters 3 and 4, and is titled, Jonah, the Ninevites, and a Plant. Because the book actually comes to us in two parts, two halves, I'll refer to part 1 and part 2 frequently throughout the sermon. Jonah is a short book, you'll notice if you're looking uh, in your Bible, if it's two pages, so for some of you, it's just one spread. You can see the whole book right before you as you look down at your Bibles, and it's deep, and it's a work of art. hope that you'll see that before we're done. Jonah's filled with great things, a great storm, a great fish, a great city, and in part two, we'll see a great plant, and we'll see a great worm, and a great scorching wind. But in all of this, we will see the greatness of our God. We'll begin today by reading Jonah 3, verses 1 through 3, which reads this way. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, if those verses sounded a whole lot like the first verses we read in part one from chapter one, you would be right. Here, the the word of the Lord is coming to Jonah a second time. Jonah's getting something like a do-over. Here's what the first time sounded like in one, one through three. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. In part one, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and he went in the exact opposite direction. In part two, God sends Jonah to Nineveh, and Jonah does exactly what God has asked. We'll explore this later, but part one and part two of the book of Jonah mirror one another. They unfold neatly in parallel, and this is reflected in this morning's outline. Jonah and God's word again. Jonah, the Ninevites, and another rescue and Jonah, a plant, and another prayer. Well, let's dive in by looking at scene one. Jonah and God's word again, first three verses of chapter three. Scene one brings encouraging news for Jonah, which we've already read about. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, and Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And at this point, we're also reminded of the greatness of the city of Nineveh. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh was a prominent city in Assyria, the world's most powerful and developed nation. Beautiful architecture, irrigation, libraries, had it all. We're also reminded that Nineveh was an evil city. Nineveh was the main bad guy on the scene, on the world scene at the time. Assyria's influence came through military domination and military domination that depended upon intimidation. They would bury their enemies alive in bricks for buildings and they would skin people alive to put them on display. This helped them get what they wanted. It was one of the most civilized places in terms of development, but one of the least civilized places in terms of decency. Israel had been trampled by Assyria, their women had been raped, their land had been annexed, and some of their people taken as slaves. Jonah was sent to these people to call out against them the message of judgment that God would give to him to speak. That God's word came to Jonah a second time is a reminder of Jonah's original, shall we say, reluctance. Implicit within all of God's announcements of judgment is the possibility that if the wicked repent, then he may relent. Listen to God's word through the prophet Joel to his people about an army he is collecting with which to judge them. Joel 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. 
He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over danger. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? So would Jonah's prophecy fail if Nineveh did turn and God did relent? No, God's relenting would be not a failure of Jonah's prophecy, but a fulfillment of the purpose of Jonah's prophecy. We can think of some helpful, even if not perfect, parallels in our own experience of growing up through life. If you haven't uh, finished cleaning your room in 40 minutes, I will lock you in there. If you haven't finished your dinosaur chicken nuggets in 40 seconds, I'm giving you three more. If you haven't turned in your paper in 40 days, I'm going to give you an F. You don't have a job in 40 days, I'm kicking you out of the house. You haven't paid your rent in 40 days, I'm evicting you from your house. Hopefully you haven't heard all of those, but you get the point. Jonah did not want any part of God's mercy toward the Ninevites, and so he ran away. Part of Jonah's deal was good old-fashioned pride. Have you ever noticed how there are certain moral lessons that keep popping up in different children's books? One of them that I bump into is this idea that there are many different kinds of people in the world and everyone is special. Now that's good to say to a human being while they're young. How about the peace book for children? The first page, peace is making new friends. And there's an image of six faces uh, or sorry, six children, all different races and religions, holding hands, being friends together. And if it's a Christian book, we're reminded rightly that God has made everyone special. One book for children on prayer uh, is written in the voice of a little girl. Do you know what I learned today, God? I learned that you made every person different and special. And that page has about ten different kids' faces, all different colors and kinds. You see, God has called Israel out from among the pagan nations, and she was to be set apart. Through her would come a Savior, through whom God would bring people to himself from among all the nations. But Jonah was representing Israel. Jonah representing Israel here was happy for God to pause his plan with his people Israel. No need for this to extend to anyone else. For Jonah, the surrounding nations were not only evil, they were also, well, not Israelites. The writers of children's books are onto something. There is a certain pride at the heart of every human. I think I'm awesome, and I think that you're an idiot. Israel had some of this going on for sure. One commentator said it well. Jonah was a great nationalist. God was a great internationalist. Jonah did not see himself as he should have as part of the broader fallen humanity and then him graciously chosen for God's special purpose that would culminate one day in God's blessing of people from all nations. God's purposes are global, even if he's focused for a time on his nation Israel here. Jonah should have been eager for the nations to repent and rejoice in God, but he did not share God's heart. And so he ran away. But that was then. Now, in chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. So what changed? What happened to Jonah between the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3? We could say it this way, Jonah experienced God. More specifically, he experienced the God of sovereign compassion. That God is sovereign means he can do whatever he wants. He's in heaven and he does all that he pleases. He's all places. He has all power. He accomplishes all of his purposes. He is also compassionate. That is, he is sad over the sin of the wicked as he is angry over their sin. He is sad over the prospect of judgment as he is justified in their judgment and must judge. And he is moved to show mercy to those who cry out to him for it. Well, to set the stage for the rest of, chapter, of part two, which we'll look at momentarily, let's review what happened in part one. Part one, scene one. God's word comes to Jonah, and Jonah gets on a ship for Tarshish, opposite direction to flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah will learn that trying to flee from the presence of the Lord is like trying to flee from planet Earth. Scene two. When Jonah got on the boat, the first thing he did was hit the sack. And he was still sleeping when God appointed a great storm 
to nearly destroy the ship. With the boat heaving in the water, the crew was throwing everything overboard that they could to lighten the ship. Everyone cried out to their God, everyone except for Jonah. Even when Jonah was called on to do so, he did not. Out of options, the crew cast lots, a superstitious way of getting to the bottom of something like this. The question, whose God is mad? The lot fell to Jonah, and God had Jonah cornered. What should we do to make your God stop? And Jonah's reply, throw me in the water. The sailors were reluctant, but when the storm got worse, overboard, Jonah went. Once Jonah was gone, so was the wind. The sailors were rescued according to God's compassion, and they reverently feared him. When they got to land, they worshipped Jonah's God, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, and made sacrifices to him and vows. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the sea, God is still with Jonah. When Jonah hit the ground at the bottom of the sea, he called out to God, and God did rescue him, and God had a place to stay that was perfectly fit for his needs, the inside of a fish. And so the final scene of part one takes place inside that fish. This is not where Jonah thought he was going when he left for Tarshish, and this is not where Jonah thought he was going when he was thrown overboard at his own request. But in a fish, he was. And this fish is what we might call God's humility hotel. The smell was exactly what Jonah needed. The sounds were exactly what Jonah needed. The darkness was exactly what Jonah needed. The taste, think of that. The temperature, the texture, was exactly what Jonah needed. Dare I say that God will happily put us into the belly of a fish, a new and surprising and unhappy place, in order that we might cry out to him? Maybe you're in the belly of a fish, There was no TV there to distract him to pass the hours. There was no alcohol to medicate his pain. There was no work there to keep him busy and his mind off his problems. And there were no friends to listen and affirm his self-justifying thoughts. This fish is God's fish. And this fish is a painfully gracious place. Painfully gracious place and exactly what Jonah needs. Now, if I was eaten by a fish, I'd like to think that I would start talking to God immediately. But as far as we know, Jonah didn't talk to God for three days. Talking to God meant talking to God about why he was on a boat instead of on land en route to Nineveh. It would mean talking to God about why he found him at the bottom of the sea and not, well, at least on the boat, since repenting on the boat would have been one of Jonah's options. He didn't tell the sailors that. But there he sat for three days, and then he prayed, remembering the Lord. And God spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited him up on dry land. That there is what happened to Jonah between chapter 1 and chapter 3. And do you see the sovereignty of God in it all? Even if Jonah went went in the opposite direction and tried to kill himself, the God of sovereign compassion would see that Jonah, his messenger, and his message got to Nineveh. And if God's sovereignty and, and compassion are both threaded throughout the entire book of Jonah, His sovereignty is in particular focus in that first half. And in part two, his compassion will come into sharper focus. With Jonah on land, part one has come to a close. And part two begins with God giving Jonah, graciously, another shot. God said, arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And he did so, the text says, according to the word of the Lord. That, by the way, would be A great caption on any of our lives, wouldn't it? He lived according to the word of the Lord, that she lived according to the word of the Lord. This brings us to the second scene in this half of the book. Scene two, Jonah, the Ninevites, and another rescue. Verses three through 10 of chapter three. We'll start by reading verses three through four. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now you imagine, what must it have been like to go to the city for Jonah? The buildings, the busyness, the power. The city was ruled by a single monarch, order. All of this had to be quite intimidating, and on foot, Jonah would have had a long approach. 
like a country boy approaching a, by car, the skyline of a great city. As it gets closer, it gets bigger and more daunting. And Jonah was one man from out of town with a message from God, which we read in verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In any way I imagine him saying that, it is just obnoxious. And how do they respond to this crazy foreigner? Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And who would have thought? Well, Jonah thought maybe this could happen. Verse 5 here that we just read is something like a headline on the response for what unfolds next more slowly, like a replay in slow motion. Verses 6 through 9. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is on his hand, in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now this is quite vivid, isn't it? Let's watch together what the king does. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself in sackcloth. This is like a rough, scratchy, potato sack kind of thing, like burlap. He sat in ashes, which is exactly as it sounds. And this ritual with sackcloth and ashes was a ritual for bad days, mourning a death, mourning sin and turning from sin. Bad days, and none of this stuff is fitting for kings, much less the king of Nineveh. It's quite a surprise. Then he issued a proclamation for all of Nineveh, for all humans and animals. They are not to taste anything, food or drink. So the humans had to not eat or drink and keep their animals from eating and drinking. They had to cover themselves with sackcloth. They are to call out mightily to God and they are to turn from their evil ways. He says even the violence that's on their hands, they're to turn from. Specific repentance. And like the sailors, the Ninevites do not presume that God will relent on account of their repentance. If God is God, then he doesn't owe anything to anyone. He's bound only to himself. And after all, Jonah has only pronounced judgment. So the king asks in verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? There's a little bit of hope there. Every line in this scene is meant to further illuminate the extent of their repentance. It is thorough. It says, all the characteristics of true repentance. They believed God's word. They humbled themselves. They turned from their evil. And they submitted to God's mercy. This is repenting. And repenting is what believing does. It is what believing looks like. In response to his eight-word sermon, the city at the heart of the world's superpower just turned to God. This is the most dramatic and thorough repentance a prophet has ever brought about that we see in Scripture. Where Jonah in sails, it is as though he had just landed the biggest deal a prophet could have landed. This would be like a top-down conversion of Christianity in Iran. Or almost crazier, this would be like Hitler halting his armies and calling for national repentance in the course of his war and an end to the war. This would be like the Taliban publishing a video to give testimony to widespread conversion to Jesus Christ among their ranks. The situation here is a little different in that Assyria was going through a time of slight decline. They'd had some pretty devastating weather things happen. They might have took that to be the anger of their God, so God may have been preparing them to hear Jonah's message in a number of ways, but they were still as wicked as we've described. And now Jonah makes this pronouncement of judgment, and there is a great repentance and a cry for mercy, a hope for mercy. But God doesn't owe this to the Ninevites, and he may judge them yet. The damage, after all, is done. Criminals don't go free just because they confess their crimes. No murderer or victim's family feels satisfied with a remorseful confession. That's not justice. What will God do? Verse 10. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Several years ago, I had the chance to visit with a man in his home that I'd been praying for. I'd been praying for a conversation in this visit about spiritual things, that God would come up. Somehow, there'd be an easy way into that conversation. He didn't have a background in church. We didn't have a chance to visit very often. Then, as I was at his home, I noticed a book on his coffee table by a Christian, familiar Christian author. And I thought, that's curious. How would that get there? Maybe someone gave it to him? There's someone, maybe there's someone else praying for him as well? And so I asked him, and I learned some things. In the last year, he'd gone through a horrible tragedy. He started asking questions about God, just curious. And so he went to the Christian bookstore and just started buying books about God. It can be dangerous. But he bought this one, and it was an okay book. And I gave him guidance from then forward. So he had this book, and then he actually went to get another book that he gave to me. And one book about God, he'd read that Christians are supposed to witness and share about God with others. So he found a little book that he could give to people that he met, and he gave me one of these. He knew I was a Christian, but he was excited to share this book with me. And when the wives proposed, proposed we all go shopping, he and I decided to stay back, and that seemed to provide a nice window for open-ended conversation, which can be a little more difficult in a home when there's multiple people milling around. And my, my purpose from there was to find out what he believed about the cross, what happened on the cross, and what was he doing with it? Was he trusting it? And in the course of our conversation, we ended up on the question of whether God could accept a murderer if he believed in Jesus. And here's what he said. Frankly, I know people have a hard time with that, but that's only a good thing for me. If God will accept a murderer, then God can accept me. Now, he wasn't confessing to murder, I don't think. He was confessing to being cut from the same cloth as a murderer. He got it. And I think the man was a Christian. Well, the relationship between God and Jonah gets a lot of attention in the book of Jonah. He is, after all, in every scene. And it is true that we are supposed to look to Jonah to see the futility of going against God. It's huge. But the way we avoid Jonah's error is not by staring at Jonah and his error, but by staring at the marvelous compassion of God and his enemies, his wonderful grace and his mercy toward his enemies. We should identify with Jonah, but even more, we probably should identify ourselves with the Ninevites. We were God's enemies, and he came for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you were in Christ, that is true for you. And this has some implications. If we really are former Ninevites, we should be ever grateful for our salvation, even stupefied by the unfathomable compassion of God. Never moving past it. If we really are former Ninevites, we should be the first to proclaim God's love for even the worst deviants in our city and in our nation and in our world. And we should feel compassion for the worst of them, even as we reject evil for what it is. This means that we should have a certain balanced vocabulary with which to speak about the Ninevites in our day, with which to describe those who don't know God. If you carried a recorder around for a week to capture everything you said about the hardest people in your life, would they sound like your enemies or would they sound like fellow sinners who need the same compassion from God that you have received that you did not deserve? the sick who need a physician, those enslaved to sin, even if voluntarily. If we really are former Ninevites, then we shouldn't shy from proclaiming the judgment of God against human sin, though. It is, after all, the announcement of judgment that powerfully quickened our hearts to receive the gospel. And it's a part and necessary in order to understand what is good about the good news. And if anyone should know that we deserve judgment, it should be us. And so there should be no pride in our telling of it. And if we really are former Ninevites, then this should be a place where repentance is normal. And we should not be ourselves ashamed to share the things that we've done when we're returning to God from them. 
And if we really are a former Ninevites, then we should be eager in prayer for the conversion of the nations, for we know that it is only by the power of God that anyone would come to him. We did not go looking for God. The Ninevites did not go looking for God. Jonah showed up on their doorstep. And after much sovereign direction by God, he deserves credit. Now, maybe you're here and you are still a Ninevite. You aren't too far from God, I promise you that. If you're breathing, you're in the same position that Ninevites were with time to repent. Pray you do that. I urge you to do that. Believe God's word. Humble yourself. Turn from the evil things you are doing, have done. Cry out to God for mercy that he might show it. And how can God forgive you, you ask? That's not a bad question at all. 1 John 4.10 says, in this, love, this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, to take God's wrath for our sins in our place. That's what happened on the cross. Whenever God passes over sin, he doesn't merely pass over sin. He's just. He must do something with it. And he takes it on himself. He puts it on his son. He puts it on Christ's tab. That's how just God is. That's how compassionate God is. That's how God can forgive all that you've done. It should feel like it would be impossible for a just God to do that. And it is, except that God does it for us through Christ. Remember that painting we made with our words and song this morning? Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That is a picture of God's love. John 3.16 is familiar for a reason. It captures the heart of God in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, this account of Nineveh's repentance is where most children's versions of the story of Jonah stop. I can sympathize with this. You can only use so much, so many words in a children's story, and simplicity is important. There's an obvious need to be simple with children. And this story of repentance makes for a very nice ending. And there's a lot of take home here already. The problem is that to end here, well, it doesn't really give you the whole story. It's like stopping a movie when you're three-fourths of the way through and then expecting to make an accurate judgment on the message of the movie or the motives of the characters. So children's versions of this story go something like this. God told Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Jonah ran from God. God pursued Jonah and rescued him through a fish. Jonah prayed to God and ran to Nineveh with God's message of love and forgiveness, and the Ninevites repented just like Jonah. Hooray for Jonah. Hooray for God. But often enough in a piece of literature, the last part is there for a reason. In fact, it's in this last part that many of our assumptions come undone such as the case in the book of Jonah, what we will find is that even Jonah, at least at the time, would not have liked many of our versions of his story. So let's let God finish the book of Jonah for us. This brings us to scene three. Jonah, a plant, and another prayer. And this point will include Jonah's prayer, but then also something of a postlude. Here at the beginning of chapter 4, we come to Jonah's prayer in response to God's mercy on the Ninevites. Here we will see how much of a changed man Jonah really is. What was in Jonah's heart when he was preaching. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, 
for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I've been giving it away all along because I think that the text assumes Jonah's beef at a basic level. But if you didn't understand Jonah's behavior to this point, surely you understand it now, hearing it from his own lips. He did not like what God was like. He liked what he was like. He did not have a hard time believing that God was compassionate. He had a hard time accepting that God was compassionate. And maybe you could repeat those lines, inserting your own attribute of God. Jonah here is quoting God's words to Moses, one of the most important lines in the Bible, and the line perhaps that Jonah would have been glad to scratch out from Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. He punishes the guilty, but he is willing and does delight to show mercy because he's compassionate on those who come to him. And after quoting God's theme verse, this is Jonah's personal application. In verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And this is not like an Apostle Paul's to live as Christ, to die as game thing going on here. Jonah hates his life because he is living in the knowledge that God is compassionate and in the reality that God shows compassion on his enemies. In Jonah here, we see the utter insanity and self-absorbing nature of sin. Jonah's soul has shriveled to the point to where it can only think about and have feelings for himself. He is that small. It is that small. He is happy when things are going exactly his way, and he is unhappy when they aren't, even if they aren't going his way, and it was his own fault. He drove himself over his own cliff. Is your spiritual life a roller coaster that follows very carefully your circumstances? You might not say it. You might not say, things are great with me and God when things are good and they're bad with me and God when my circumstances are bad. You might be careful enough as a Christian to know that that's goofy. But is it actually true if you were to watch a graph of your emotions and your satisfaction in God and your thoughts about him and toward him? that it follows your circumstances? Jonah has a small soul. But you ask, didn't Jonah obey God's word and go to Nineveh? Well, yes, he did. What was that all about? Why did he go? Well, here's a commentator that I think has nailed it. The lesson Jonah seems to have learned is not that it is wrong to disobey the Lord and try to escape one's commission, but rather that it is fruitless. Jonah, I would suggest, is not repentant, but resigned to the facts. The Lord will not even allow Jonah's death to interfere with his mission. Jonah's like the kid who finally does what his parents say after some severe rebuke and discipline. Fine, I will do it. But he does not have a happy heart. And consider that Jonah had no short trek from Joppa, where he was spit up on land, thrown up on land, excuse me. And Nineveh, he had 550 miles, and that's plenty of time to think, to process, and even to finally come around. If his obedience was half-hearted at first, no doubt if he was open to coming around, he could have in that amount of time. But no, it appears that his heart has grown harder and harder. So what was his chapter-long prayer all about in chapter 2? Remember a whole chapter? Let's listen to it. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. On the belly of the fish, Jonah was not worshiping God. Strange to say that after a prayer where he said some good things. I would say he was not worshiping God for his compassion. He was worshiping God's compassion. There's no mention of his sin here, and all his sin should be ever before him, only his sad situation. If he was worshiping God for his compassion, he would have confessed his utter lack of love for the Ninevites he'd abandoned and the sailors he'd endangered. If he was worshiping God for his compassion, he would have been happy to see it go to whomever because he would know that he depends on God's freedom to show compassion to whoever for God to show compassion to him. But no, it was not God that Jonah loved. It was Jonah that Jonah loved and God's compassion on Jonah. In the fish, Jonah prays concerning his life. The waters closed in over me to take my life, yet you brought up my life from the pit. But now in chapter 4, under... Now in chapter 4, Jonah prays, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That it is better for me to die when you show compassion to my enemies and your enemies than it is for me to live. And the reason we have a chapter-long prayer in chapter 2, I would say, is not a setup for a great change of heart, but to highlight the twisted and subtle and deceptive nature of sin in Jonah's heart that does not share the heart of God. Jonah does not know what he's asking for. And if you, ever, if, you have, if you have ever asked for this yourself, you do not know what you're asking for. You may be aware that there is a legitimate question as to the extent of the Ninevites' salvation. Uh, did they repent so that God withheld judgment for now? Or did they actually convert to Yahweh? It's interesting to note there's no mention of Yahweh here or sacrifices or vows like there are in the case of the sailors in chapter 1. Though there is a genuine turn. And it's actually only a matter of time historically in in the Bible's history that the Ninevites are actually judged for the same evils they repented of here. But thankfully, the thrust of the book does not hang on this. It does not depend on knowing either way. The Ninevites, of all people, believed God and repented. And guess who didn't? Jonah. Listen to this excerpt from Matthew. Interacting with the Pharisees of Jesus' day, we could say Jonah's kids. Listen to how Jesus brings up Jonah to them, Matthew 12, 38 and following. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying that the generation of their fathers would not repent even at the sign of Jonah, his miraculous deliverance from the fish, And this generation would not either. In fact, he's going to give them a sign like Jonah's, but instead of being swallowed by a fish for his own sins, Jesus will be swallowed by death for the sins of his people. And then he'll appear on land land alive after three days, just like Jonah. And do you notice that he mentions the Ninevites here? It may be that Jesus is actually saying that the Ninevites will judge Israel in the last day, those that were hardened in their heart, like Jonah. Or maybe it's that the testimony of the Ninevites' repentance will serve as a judgment against Israel. And I, I say that because Jesus goes on to reference, uh, uh, to mention that the Queen of Sheba will stand in judgment as well, although there's no record in the Old Testament of her coming to Yahweh in conversion. But whatever the case may be, Jesus' citation of Jonah, Jonah's story, applies it rightly as an indictment against Israel. Jesus is using the Jonah reference here in his conversation with the Pharisees in the same way that the book of Jonah was supposed to function as an indictment against Israel when they received it. So there's a question as to the nature of the Ninevite salvation, but the better question has to do with Jonah. Is Jonah saved? Is he what Paul would call a true Jew by faith? Based only on what we have in this book only on what we have in this book. And even Jesus is comparing the Pharisees with Israel, 
of Jonah's day, I want to say no. Jonah represented Israel, her heart, her love for God, and her obedience, and she had none. And frankly, with a prophet and representative like Jonah, it would seem that there was no hope for God's people. Imagine getting this book. This is us in Jonah. God requires obedience and we can't bring it. But remember, the story of Jonah is not just a story about Jonah. It's a story about Jonah and the great God. Through Jonah's hardness of heart, God is showing us our real need. The promised Savior must fix this monumental problem. Even Jonah's fish experience didn't change his heart. God must give a new heart to his people. And through God's great heart of compassion and his free exercise of his sovereignty to show it, we see exactly where Israel's hope and our hope lies. And so praise God this morning for sending Jesus Christ, the greater prophet, who not only brought but embodied God's message of compassion. Jesus Christ was, we could say, this God of sovereign compassion incarnate. And this is good news. You know that Jesus had many reasons for performing his various signs, but one of them was simply compassion. Matthew 14, 14 tells us that when Jesus saw a great crowd, he was, had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus was followed by thousands and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And he performed a miracle to feed them. Remember the Samaritan woman, the prostitute, Levi, the crooked tax collector, and his friends? Remember how Jesus illustrated God's command to love our neighbor as ourself in the story of the Good Samaritan who came across an injured man by the road. And the text says, when he saw him, he had compassion and at great cost to himself took care of his need. Remember the father's response when his prodigal son came home. The boy approached his father's property, but when he was still a long way off, the text says his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Compassion, the father's compassion. And remember Jesus' words from the cross about his killers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As God's, God has wrath for sin, but also a deep sadness over sin, and he delights in showing mercy to those who come to him for it. Now, if Jonah were to speak of God's special saving love for his people, he would do right. God has a special and a saving love for those whom he specifically calls and those who belong to him. But while God's wrath remains on the unbelieving and unrepentant, we see that God also has a kind of love, a compassion, pity, the book will use later, for them. Sheep without a shepherd, the sick who need a physician. And in our effort to preserve rightly the justice of God and the doctrine of his wrath against sin, we should not forget that God is diverse in his affections and also has a kind of compassion on the lost and his enemies. Okay, one last blow for Jonah. As the story has been unfolding, we've seen that Jonah keeps getting more and more ridiculous and God keeps getting greater and greater. And this is a satire and God is about to lay it on thick. We're going to look now at a postlude in the book. We've tucked it under the third point or the third scene and it kind of belongs there, but it really is on its own. Did you notice the similarities between part one and two? Each part has three scenes and the three scenes run parallel to one another. Part one and part two, we both we see that God's word comes to Jonah and Jonah responds to God's word. We see a remarkable rescue as God shows mercy on some unlikely but repentant characters. And we get to listen to Jonah pray. But now at the end of chapter four, we have six verses that don't have a match in the first half of the book. And so let's look at it now. And this is where we can say the point of the book of Jonah comes into especially sharp Focus. 4, 5 through 11. Jonah went out of the city and sat up to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and that it withered, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah decided that he wouldn't go to Jerusalem. He'd camp out outside of Nineveh and hope that their repentance wouldn't stick and that God would judge them and he could cheer from the stands, as it were. From God's perspective, the mission was a, was a success, but from Jonah's perspective, it was so far a total failure. So he went a short distance east, built this shelter, and banked his hopes in the possibility of judgment yet. But God was there with Jonah, and God started appointing things again. Remember how he appointed a wind to stir up the waters at sea, and he appointed a fish to swallow Jonah? Well, now God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah. Jonah is hot, full of discomfort, and God is nice to him. And here Jonah is the happiest he's been since we met him. He is exceedingly happy because of the plant. But all that lasted about a day. God had had a point to make. The next morning, God appointed a worm to destroy the plant. In my head, I've always imagined the super worm. You know, we've got this fish thing going on, we've got the plant thing going on, and a worm that eats the whole plant. But it actually, I mean, I just stand corrected by the text, it actually just ate enough to make the plant wither. Beautiful, interesting, and fascinating imagery, though. Can you imagine being there and watching the worm come out? Maybe it was small enough that Jonah couldn't see it even, and the plant just withered and died. Jonah's response, repentance? Nope. Another self-absorbed suicidal statement. It is better for me to die than to live. And just to make sure that Jonah knows what he's saying, God says, in other words, Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry? Is your life that sad? And what does Jonah say? Yes, I have a good reason to be this angry, and my life is this sad, and I just assume die. Well, have you ever refused to do what you knew was right? even at great cost to yourself and someone else. Here we see where that impulse goes, what that grows into, what that looks like when it's put in the corner, and how ugly it is. Dare I say, some of our arguments at home and in our head would print out on the page about as ugly or more ugly as what we read here. Jonah could not look worse at this point. This is the first time in the story that Jonah has been happy, and it is over a plant. The sailors rejoice in their salvation. The Ninevites did. God rejoiced over all of that. Now Jonah is exceedingly glad about a plant. And for all of the near-death experiences and threats of judgment in this book, this is the first time that Jonah has been sad about anything dying, and it's a plant. Isn't God patient with us? You or I would have killed him. And God wouldn't have been unjust to end it for Jonah. But he was compassionate toward Nineveh, but he was also compassionate toward Jonah, this man and his specific species of sin. And it might be encouraging to know or to consider that it's probably the case that Jonah turned around and repented of all of this in time. How else would we know about the prayer and the fish or much of this or all of this story if Jonah had not written the book or conveyed the story. God can certainly drop it down by inspiration. Some things came that way. But it is likely that this is a story that Jonah told. He could not look worse. And he was happy to paint himself that way if he did write it so that God would be exalted. Well, if this last section is meant to drive home the point of the book, the last two verses are the very tip, the very tip of the point. Verse 10 and 11. He's wound up about the plant, and we read this. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's a good question. The reference to 120,000 is likely a reference to the entire population of people who are morally and spiritually blind. Now, did you notice that we did just read the last verse of the book of Jonah and that the last word of the last verse 
was cows. In chapter 3, the animals even repented. And here, the animals make another appearance, again, to shame Jonah. And this is not bad writing. God has written an amazing story, and frankly, this is an amazing ending. He wrote a short masterpiece here of satire, and this ending, this ending question is, is an example of the book's best humor and best dig and best conviction. Some questions are asked for rhetorical effect, some from curiosity, maybe most of them, but sometimes questions are asked to make a point, to convict, to get under our skin and to accuse, and so it is here. And here is what God is saying to Jonah. You had a heart for the plant, Jonah. But if you don't care about the 120,000 people in that city, can't you at least have some compassion on the cows? Well, praise God that God is not like Jonah. That he is not like us. He is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. He is in all places. He has all power. He accomplishes all of his purposes. And he purposes because he pleases to show mercy to sinners who come to him for it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are not like Jonah. Not like us. Jonah had a total lack of compassion. But Father, you have a total abundance of compassion. We praise you for your steadfast love, for your abundant mercy, for your compassion on sinners, on your enemies, and on us through Jesus Christ. For your special love for your people that draws us to yourself, that keeps us to yourself, and that love which you will show off brightly for all eternity when we're with you. And we thank you for sending your spirit and for turning our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh for the new birth and for the powerful working of your word that makes us to want what you want so that we can look at Jonah and see a picture of us, yes, and see a warning against sin, yes, but not exactly see ourselves because you have done a work to make us new and you've given us a new heart. Help us to see even more clearly this week, Father, to humble ourselves before you in in regular repentance, to be honest before you, to rejoice in your sovereignty and to rejoice in your compassion, certainly on us, but on anyone who is your enemy, anyone to whom you show compassion in Christ, anywhere on the earth. And may you bring many from among the nations to yourself through him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.